Today's Rewrite Radio remembers Eugene Peterson in an interview with the Reverend Scott Jose. Together they speak about our lives as sinners, our defensiveness, and how we can learn directly from Jesus. I'm Jennifer Holberg, and along with Jane Zwart, I am the co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Minister, theologian, author, and poet, Eugene Peterson was perhaps best known for The Message, the Bible in contemporary language. The Message won a gold medallion book award, now called the Christian Book Award, from the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, and it has sold over 20 million copies since its release. Peterson is the author of many other works as well, including As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work, and A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He was a founding pastor of Christ Our King Presbyterian Church, and he was also the James M. Houston Professor of Spiritual Theology at Regent College. Here from 2010 with Scott Jose is Eugene Peterson. Here, this, this is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. Start out uh, uh, with a line that I read years ago um, from the writer Toni Morrison. Um, Somebody once asked Toni Morrison uh, if even when she was a little girl, if she knew she wanted to grow up to be a writer. And she said, no, uh, I wanted to grow up to be a reader. Um, and sort of, sort of as a, taking that as a, a jumping off point, um, talk, talk to us a little bit about um, how your own reading uh, has nourished your, your writing. What are the connections for you uh, between reading and writing? and how one nourishes the other. Scott, let me just match your quotation from Toni Morrison. I met a musician a few months ago, Jeff Taylor, and he told me that uh, when he was young, he told his father he wanted to grow up to be a musician. And his father said, you can't do both. (laughs) Very good. I think my reading uh, started early. Um, I I don't know how I learned to read, but I learned to read before I went to the first grade. And uh, so I got in the year early because my mother took me and showed showed the teacher that I could read. All I could read was Harold Burt's story of the Bible, but that's a pretty good start. (laughs) But as I... um, as I grew uh, and uh, worked through the grades, um, I hate to say this, and I hope none of my, I think all my teachers are dead by now, so I can say this. <laughs> but I didn't, this is a small town in Montana, and, and it really was not a very good school. Um, so I was um, left on my own, and uh, I discovered the library when I was seven or eight years old. and. Um, and just started exploring and found that um, I loved fiction, I loved stories. And uh, discovered it, maybe by the time I was an adolescent, I studied, I, I discovered Dickens and Faulkner and um, Eliot and, 
and just a little one beyond that, Dostoevsky. And uh, so I was just immersed in the story. And um, I showed up in my classes and passed my grades, but what I was really, what inhabited my mind was novelists and poets. So I think that when you read really good writers, you start paying attention to how they're doing it. And I was paying attention. I wasn't just reading for the story. I was watching, well, how do they do this? What's going on with them? So that's how I started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, are there any uh, uh, contemporary authors right now who, whom you've been reading, uh, whose work you've been, uh, novelists or, or other types of writing, um, whose work has um, been particularly meaningful to you recently? Um, well, my wife and I read together a lot in the evenings, uh, aloud, and one of our kind of basic um, writers is Wallace Stegner, and uh, we read his novels, most of them several times. Uh, he's just, he's a Western writer, uh, and he's, um, he has an enormous sense of dignity and care about his about things that we care about, forgiveness, reconciliation. And so we've been we're halfway through uh, his his biography, and um, and finding all kinds of resonances with our lives. Uh, he and his wife are, have a lot of similarities to Jan and me, and uh, it's just kind of fun to find somebody who is a writer and who cares about the same things that we do. Um, he never confessed to being a Christian, but he was, when he was young and uh, in, a, in graduate school, he was teaching at a Lutheran college, and the, uh, there was a coup in the trustees, and the evangelicals were thrown out by the fundamentalists, and they purged the, purged the school. And they wrote a letter to Stegner that the rumor is that you're an atheist and agnostic. Uh, he wrote back and said, I don't see how I could be both. Would you clarify? <laughs> so they clarified it by firing him. <laughs> Very good. Um, if you were, uh, if you were specifically, uh, we, we've got a, a very eclectic group of people who come uh, to the Festival of Faith and Writing each time. But uh, I know we also have uh, uh, any number of preachers uh, who come here. Um, would there? It may be some of the same things you already mentioned. But but if you were going to recommend a program of reading for preachers that would feed their work of writing sermons, are there any particular things you would? Um, would come to mind that you'd really want to say to preachers, you know, this is this is the book or the kind of thing you ought to read. Well, I think for pastors, for preachers, um, I think what we're really trying to do is to develop a sense of language and how language works. So um, I think you find good writers, not necessarily preachers or pastors, but just good writers. Uh, one of the, I think, um, misfortunes in, uh, in the work we do, uh, preaching, being a pastor, um, is how much bad writing there is. Uh, pastors commonly don't seem to pay much attention to write, to, to words. There's so many cliches, uh, so much sloppy writing, slogans, um, 
they just don't care about language. This, I mean, this is holy. These are holy words. This is sacred stuff. And uh, language is right at the heart of the gospel and of our work. You know, we're, we major in language. And um, I think that uh, using language well is really important. Some people who have used language well for me, who have been uh, pastors, preachers, are uh, Frederick Beekner, uh, Richard Lesher. Um, not, a, not a pastor or preacher, but Kathleen Norris. Um, I used to read W.B. White through every year to make, just make sure I wasn't getting by with murder. <laughs> Very good. Um, I mentioned um, when we began a moment ago that you've actually, um, uh, across the years, uh, you've written and published in um, quite a few different forms. I mean, obviously you spent many years writing sermons, uh, but you've also written books of meditations, you've written reflection books on different parts of the Bible, Paul's letter to the Galatians, or uh, your wonderful book on the life of uh, David, Leap Over a Wall. Uh, you've written books like Working the Angles, that kind of sir, and the Contemplative Pastor, books that were about ministry. Um, and now recently, uh, you just completed uh, your five-volume uh, work on what you've called Conversations in Spiritual Theology. Um, Talk a little bit about the, the challenges of those different kinds of writing. Is there any one type of book or writing? And of course, you've, you know, you've done paraphrasing too in the message. Uh, is there any one type of writing that's been more challenging for you than others? Um, uh, do you approach it differently, you, the, the writing task now? Do you approach it differently if it's going to be a sermon as opposed to uh, a book like Practice Resurrection or as opposed to a book like Working the Angles? I mean, how, how, does that, how has that gone for you? Well, Scott, I think most of my writing has been self-education. Um, I wanted to be a writer uh, early on when I was an adolescent, and um, but I I wasn't a writer. I my first published writing was a letter to the editor uh, in a local paper when I was defending the um, unpopular stance of one of my teachers, and people read it, and um, I was. I was thrilled. I mean, I'm an, I'm an author. I'm a writer. <laughs> I got my name signed to it, and they noticed it. Um, but the, I think writing at that point was more of a romantic thing. It was just, I like to be noticed. And, uh, but as, when I became a pastor, um, it probably helps to know that I, I, I came upon being a pastor late. And uh, so I really didn't, hadn't really thought much about being a pastor. And when I realized that I was a pastor, I had to um, kind of learn how to do it on the ground. And um, the first published book I had was, uh, the title now is Lipo, is um, Like Do Your Youth. When it was published, it was um, Growing Up in Christ. And it came out of my pastoral practice. Um, I had a bunch of adolescents that I was teaching a confirmation class, and uh, and when you have a bunch of adolescents who are having trouble, um, you have a lot of parents who are having trouble. <laughs> and so I supplemented my teaching of the kids uh, once a week with the, a gathering of their parents. and. Um, 
I wanted to, you know, I realized when I was doing that that adolescents are trying to find out how to be adults. And, and about 20 years later, their parents are trying to find out how to be adults. They've kind of put it off for a long time. So um, I got the parents together and I said, you know, these kids are not the ones who have the problems. You do. So let's talk about what it means to be an adult. And then you'll understand what your kids are trying to do. So instead of looking at the kids as problems, I tried to reimagine, reform their imagination to look at, looking at them as gifts. These kids are teaching you how to be an adult. And it was, it was wonderful. I did that for, I guess, 10 years. And, um, and then I realized, you know, I think I'd like to write a book about that. And so I wrote a book. Um, and I was, I was pleased at how it turned out, and I got a publisher, um, John Knox Press, and uh, and so I was, you know, I can remember how how fresh this felt to me. That I I really come on something, living in that age of psychology where you're really trying to figure out what makes people tick and uh, help them get through their problems and grow up. And uh, I was on to something which I later learned it is, learned the name of spiritual theology. How do you live your theology? Um, how do you live a full life in Christ, a mature life in Christ? And um, so I think I've been writing that book all my life. I don't think I've really, really diverged too much from that. This is just a little incident which has nothing to do with your question, but uh, because I was I had a contract with a publishing house, respectable Presbyterian publish, publishing house. Um, I started feeling, you know, I'm an author, I'm a writer. So when the editor would make changes and things, I'd think, ah, I'm the writer. And um, so we had conversations which, um, they were friendly, but they were a little testy sometimes too. And um, so the book was published. Uh, and uh, I hadn't seen it yet. I knew it was in the press. And I had a dream one night. Uh, I walked into a drugstore, and uh, there was my book uh, on a paper on a back on a rack of paperbacks, and it had a very provocatively posed nude woman on the front. <laughs> and at the very bottom, in small print, was "Growing Up in Christ." And I ran to the telephone, and I called him up, and I said, Dick, Dick, what did you do to my book? And he said in a very flat, cool voice, we didn't change a word in it, but we have to sell it. <laughs> that, that was the dream. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> so I called him up in the morning, and I told him about my dream. He didn't think it was funny. <laughs> It wasn't because he had that in mind, was it? No. <laughs> so much for that. Did, did um, when you were writing sermons regularly, did uh, did did some of your uh, your sermon work? I mean, I'm thinking about you know, leap over a wall about the life of David or uh, traveling light on Galatians. Did, did did were you able to use sermons that you did in the church to flow into those other books later, or? Um, were you able to get kind of like double duty out of them, in other words? Uh, not really. Um, 
there was, you know, I was using, I was thinking through these things, praying through them, living through them. But no, a sermon is very different from a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, writing a sermon, I always wrote my sermons, but I don't think I ever took my sermons and, and reworked them into a book. It was, the stuff was there, but uh, orality is very different than reading. And uh, so I've thought about that, you know, why, I know a lot of preachers do that, uh, print their sermons, but it just didn't seem, it didn't seem like me. So I didn't do that. Well, I took a lot of your books and turned them into sermons over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you of that. So it did go the other way. Um, it's true. Um, um, you, um, and this goes a little bit to, to, to writing, but also um, I would imagine uh, this, this played in, plays into preaching as well. Um, one of your recent books, um, uh, you used uh, the, that, you know, the, the line from that Emily Dickinson poem, Tell It Slant, right? And I think everybody in the room probably knows it, but uh, I'll just read it anyway. Um, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning till the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Um, you obviously like that poem. Um, how, how is the ideas contained in that? How has that influenced how you preached, but also how you write, uh, even yet, yet today? Well, I, I think, Scott, the, um, this business of telling the truth slant, I think I learned it from Jesus. Um, I realized at some point, you know, there's, when people ask Jesus a question, he didn't answer them. He either asked them a question or told them a story. And the story didn't seem to have anything to do with the question. And I can just imagine these people walking off, scratching their heads, what's he talking about? And then maybe two or three weeks later, they realized what it was. Um, truth is not a confrontational way. Truth is not conveyed confrontationally. Um, because we're sinners, we have a bunch of defenses. We really don't want God, no matter what we say we do. Our deep down, we're trying to twist things around to our own liking. We want God to be on our side. We want to use God. And the gospel just reverses all of that. Now, how do I, how am I able, how do I get past that defensiveness, which, which all of us have? Um, and biblically, it seems to me you do it obliquely. Um, the Psalms are wonderful. Um, you know, poetry is basically an oblique way of, of, uh, of speaking or writing. And uh, much of the Bible is in poetry. So the stories uh, that Jesus told, the poetry, um, why do we have these big, thick books exegeting Paul? Why didn't he say it's simple? Now, it's not complicated. I mean, it's profound, but um, he's telling it slant. He's coming at it obliquely, getting past our expectations, the way we think God should ha handle. God, for the most part, God doesn't act like we think he ought to. 
why God, why, why, why? Well, the truth, uh, in order to survive, has to, has to uh, come. We've got to change our orientation from demanding something to receiving something. And asking for something is a lot easier than receiving something. Because when you receive it, you're not sure what you've got. You don't know how to do it. So I think that's why that poem has been important. Um, the, um, one of the writers on language that I like a lot, have learned a lot from, is George Steiner. And um, George Steiner is, uh, is a master at understanding the way language works. And he says one place, um, in one of his uh, books four or five years ago, I think it was Real Presences, that 90% of language is non-informational. Most language, well, I'll maybe put it differently, 10% of language is informational. 90% is not. So when we're using language just to try to get the facts right, and um, to get it understood in an easy way, I think we're kind of going across the whole way language works. So I don't think as preachers we should try to make it um, a clear message. I think we need to invite the imagination. I had a young man in my congregation who got saved at the Billy Graham crusade. And uh, he was on fire for God. He was 16, 17 years old. And, uh, and he'd complained to me about my preaching. He said, you know, Pastor, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. You leave me just kind of hanging. I don't know what's going on. So I, we talked about it. And I finally gave up. And I thought, this is, this is not working. So every, about every third or fourth week, I can finish my sermon with, here are three things you do now. And he'd leave and say, oh, pastor, that was such a good sermon. But, you know, one out of four, that's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I want to involve his imagination in living this life of Christ and the grace is coming and receiving. Why do you think, given all of that, what, I mean, I think, uh, well, of course, you know, the, the big change in preaching and in homiletics across the last 40 years, let's say, has been the move toward the more the inductive sermon, the turn to the listener, you know, the Fred Craddock uh, type of thing. Um, but for a very long time in the church, um, preaching was very deductive. It was 90% information, 10% imagination on a good day. Um, um, and a lot of people outside the church, when they hear the word sermon or, the, or preaching, to this day, that's what they think of, heavy-handed didacticism. And they're not wrong. That's not a caricature. And a lot of preaching still today, but certainly across the ages, that was what it was. How did the church get there, do you think? I mean, why did we get so far from Jesus and Paul telling it slant uh, to, 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 you know, the way preaching developed uh, across at least recent centuries, especially in Protestantism? How, how did that happen, do you think? Well, the Enlightenment project is the whipping boy, I suppose, that there is a lot of, that, of this because we, across the board in Europe and, um, and then into America, uh, we quit thinking about God primarily, started thinking about ourselves, 
and so we wanted to get more information. We were, know how things work. Uh, mystery kind of slowly slipped out of our lives, sometimes not so slowly. And, um, and then Protestantism, I think, accelerated that um, because of the lack of a sacramental um, liturgy or worship. So when, when we lost we lost touch with these sacraments, which are, that's telling its slant really well. Uh, we got impatient. Um, and so we did them kind of pro forma. Um, but um, there's been a, happily, it seems to me, there's been a return to uh, more of a affirmation of the importance of paying attention to the mystery, not trying to figure it out to receive it. My son, uh, my, my, uh, yeah, my son uh, grew up a good Presbyterian, and then uh, he was seduced by a woman who was an Episcopalian. <laughs> and so he's raised his children in this little Episcopal church in Montana. And Hans, when he was about five years old, had a good friend, Sam, who, um, who received communion every, day, every Sunday. And uh, Leif wouldn't let Hans receive communion because he didn't understand it. And um, so the bishop came to do something, and um, Hans uh, got him aside and he said, you know, Hans wants to take communion because his good friend Sam takes communion, and he just wants to do it because Sam does it, and I don't think he understands it. What should I do? And the bishop said, do you understand it? <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> Bring him to the altar. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, well, that kind of leads to, to, to another thing I wanted to ask you about, and it'll um, uh, takes a little bit of background before I can ask this this question. But it talks a little bit about. Um, I mean, you've been thinking about spiritual theology intensely over these last few years as you've been working on your book series uh, with Erdmans, and. Um, uh, and so just want to ask a question, not so much about writing for, for just a moment. We'll get back to talking about writing in a minute. Um, but, but just sort of your take on, on where things are at. In, in the last book in your series, the one that just came out, Practice Resurrection, um, uh, you make a really interesting point regarding a, a fairly well-known line in Ephesians 4, uh, where Paul begs the Ephesians to, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And you point out that the word there, worthy, the Greek word is axios, which is actually a scale. And you point out that, you know, so if you got a scale, you got a one pound lead weight on the scale, and you put flour on the other side, when the two balance, when they're in equilibrium, that's axios. That, that's being, you know, the flour is worthy and so forth. And so you, 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 your point there is that when Paul says to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, your, your, your point was that that means that we are in balance with God, that we almost have equilibrium um, with God. So reflecting on all that, a, cu a couple of, uh, of related questions. First, um, how do you think the church in North America is doing uh, in that regard? I mean, when people from the outside looking in especially look into the church, do you think they see God, they see Christ in us, uh, in, in, in the church world, do they see us as being in balance um, with, with God? And then kind of related to that, then there is sort of a, 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 a writing-related thing. Well, what do you think uh, is the vocation or the role that, that writers, poets, and preachers play in, 
in helping get us in, in that kind of a balance with, with God. So how do you see the church today uh, and, and, and what can preachers and poets and writers do to address you know, helping make that a reality? Well, Scott, I have a, I've got a, um, I'm not very oxyos about this. <laughs> I've got a, you know, the scales are tipping all the time. And, um, but part of writing that final volume uh, of the series, Practice Resurrection, I, I think I gathered up a, lifetime of working in the church, of working as a pastor, of gathering a congregation to worship. And I really believe that this is Christ's church. And flaws and all, sin and all, um, this is Christ's church. This is the church he founded. And we're not there by a long ways, but still the whole, the center of it is what God has done. He could have created a perfect church. Or he could have made the standard so high that only the people who really had it together got in. So we wouldn't be an embarrassment to the world. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to mind being embarrassed. I mean, we're all calling ourselves Christians and he lets us. So I've got, I'm trying to understand how this works. And, um, but I think that the thing that I real, I've realized last, well, ever since I started being a pastor, is that um, if there's one thing that's conspicuous about the American church, is that there's no ontology. There's no theology of church. It's all pragmatics. Our question is, is um, how can we do church? Have you heard that? How can we do church better? Just scrap that question. You know, we, this is the church we have. Now, how can I enter into what God is doing here? And this pragmatic definition of the church seems to me is responsible for an enormous amount of unhealth because we're now in charge of the church. It's like we have this idea that we get saved and that's all God's work. You know, I think we're pretty clear about that in terms of how we think of this. It's all by grace, we're saved. And then the minute we're baptized or become members of the church, we kind of say, okay, now how do we do this? And um, it's no longer God, it's us, because he, he made us to do this. And um, so there's this tension within me. How do I um, embrace the church God gave me? so that I enter into what's going on, rather than you know, nitpicking, why do they do this, classifying people, criticizing them, angry with them, and then hiding my anger with this nice smile. Um, it, it, it involves pastors, uh, those of us who, or anybody in leadership of the church, with a lot of conflicted stuff, and we're no longer just present to what's there. And I think one of the things that those of us who um, have some concern about the health of the church is to be present to what's there, not trying to fix something so it works the way we think it ought to. I kind of meandered around there, but am I close to what you asked? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, 
you know, well indeed, um, uh, just reflecting on your own experience, um, I guess you've already said this a little bit, but that, you know, how, how do you, in, in preaching but also in pastoral care, you know, how, how do you um, negotiate your own feelings of frustration that these people, this church, isn't farther along uh, and, and yet want to, wanting to be gentle and nourishing and nurturing enough um, that it's not just about your frustration, but that you, you, you turn that I mean, how, into something positive. How do you negotiate or how have you negotiated some of that uh, in your own interactions with people um, in congregations? Well, I'm glad you asked that because um, it's a really key thing in, in what I think is right at the heart of Christian language. I use the word conversations very deliberately in this, in this series of spiritual theology books because the primary language of spiritual maturity and understanding is conversation. We've got three kinds of languages, roughly, uh, that we use. Charismatic, which you're in charge of as a preacher and teaching of preachers. And there's a sense in which that is the heart of everything we do. The charisma, the proclamation. This is the way the world is since God made it and redeemed it. And uh, I think it's very uh, proper and accurate that the pulpit is the center um, place in our, in our worship, uh, or holds a center place. Um, and there's another, another kind of language which you use, is quite, is, which is quite different, and that's didactic language. There's a lot to understand about this. So we get professors, we get teachers, we get Bible teachers, we have Bible classes. And we look at this and we say, oh, how do we do this? What is involved in all this? This is, this is not just big truths. This is a lot of intersecting truths. And um, so we've trained people to train us in how to read the Bible, to read, read theology. But there's a huge middle part in this, which I call paracletic language. Um, <clears throat> The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, um, it's not a preaching language, it's not a proclamation, it's not a teaching language, it's a conversation language. It's the language we use when we're getting acquainted, when we're being friendly, when we're understanding ourselves, when we're out to dinner with some friends and we're talking. We're not making pronouncements, we're not explaining things. This is, this is broccoli, it comes from this kind of a plant, and this is the way you cook it, and we don't do that. We, we all of us use paracletic language a lot, and that's a good part of this 90% of the language that's not informational. But in the church, um, and maybe more in Protestantism than in uh, the Catholic or Orthodox churches, uh, this paracletic language is, um, it's not Christian. It's, it's not important, but it is important. And so for pastors especially, but not just pastors. Uh, in fact, I, I quit using the word pastor, I think, almost entirely in these five books, because I realized that pastors are the hardest ones to change in this world. And let me, let me work the lay people for a while. <laughs> That's what I've worked with all my life, is the lay people, not pastors. Um, but you, when, you're, when you're in conversation, you listen a lot. 
you listen a lot. Now that, it seems to me, is a huge part of Christian language, is listening. And that's what pastors get to do um, a lot, if they will. Um, somebody asked me once how to get a spiritual director. And I said, well, this is, a, this is what I did once, um, but only once. I said, well, you, if you find somebody you trust, and you ask him to meet with you um, once a month or every six weeks, and the only two things he or she has to do is show up and shut up. <laughs> and then you might get a con real conversation going. Mm, yeah. And of course, prayer is the paradigmatic uh, instance of this, where listening has to have at least equal billing with speaking. But um, that's not common among us. You know, we're, God do this, God do that, God do that. Why this, why that? And then we get off, off our knees and go about and don't listen. Yeah. Well, the other thing about the whole concept of a conversation, right, is that for true dialogue to happen, for a, a true conversation to take place, there's also has to be the possibility of it being mutually transformative. That's right. right. Whereas the charismatic and didactic languages, I've got something to give you, right. sit down, shut up, and listen, and it's one way, uh, whereas the, the other one is mutually um, nourishing. Yeah. yeah. And I think for, you know, the work you and I do, um, preaching can have a, have a paracletic or a conversational aspect to it, so that people are invited into what is being proclaimed, and not just pounded with it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Fred Cradock uh, earlier. I think he's a master at this. Mm -hmm. And we've got some really good preachers who do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned um, theology uh, a minute ago and so forth. Um, in, in one of the books, I can't remember which one, uh, but in one of the uh, books, the, the epigram you've got for one of your <laughs> chapters uh, is from Marilyn Robinson, and Marilyn Robinson's line that says, great theology is always a kind of giant and intricate poetry, like epic or saga. What's that uh, quote mean to you, and, and, and who today is writing theology other than you? Um, uh, who, who kind of fits into what Robinson is saying there? Because I think when most people hear the word theology, they don't think great and intricate poetry. They think of something quite different. But but who, who who today in writing theology do you think kind of gets close to what Marilyn is talking about there? Um, you know who ruins great theology is theologians. <laughs> They're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, how how far off this one is. You know when I grew up, um, I hated theology. I grew up in a church where all theology was was argument. And I went to a college where um, the, all the arguments took place in the religion, religion department. And um, mm. I just got fed up with it. And so I studied literature and philosophy. It wasn't anything, you didn't have to argue that. You, well, philosophers sometimes do. Um, when I... Um, when I became a pastor, I didn't know much theology. I really didn't. And um, I heard Douglas Steer, who was a Quaker philosopher, he's been dead years now, give a lecture uh, on Calvin, Calvin's Institutes. 
and he um, and he was talking about great theological, great spiritual writing. And McNeil's translation had just come out, and um, so I decided he kind of ignited my curiosity and desire, and so I decided I would read. This first year I was ordained, I would read through the institutes. And then for the next 10 years, I would keep reading them and just absorbing them. How do you write about the gospel, scripture, truth, with grace and dexterity? And um, I wasn't trying to learn particularly what Calvin said. I was trying to find out how his mind worked. And um, I would say that the, the institutes are a symphony. There, it's uh, but in lectures I hear by some people, there it's not, it's not, it's not music. It's not, it's not an epic. It's not a symphony. Nothing's tied together. Things are pulled out. You know, here's a. I, I'm just reading a book, uh, which I think is um, does honor to Calvin in a way. And I, I overstate things, uh, so don't. You know, I've got a lot of room for negotiation in, what I, in my mind. I have a middle name which begins with H, and my wife, it's, it's my mother's maiden name, Hoyland, and she says, that's not true. It stands for hyperbole. <laughs> so I don't want to overstate this. But it's a book that's just coming out. Erdman's is publishing in a couple months called Calvin's Ladder. And it's written by Julie Cantless. And um, it's just lovely. I mean, lovely is the word for it. It's graceful. It's, um, it sings Calvin. And um, it's, it's very precise and elegant academically. But there is a spirit that infuses the book, which is just a delight to read. So you know, there are people who do this, uh, but sometimes somehow the people who argue a lot uh, have the loudest voices, and they get the most attention. Mm -hmm. Now, what did you ask me, <laughs> Marilyn oh, Robinson? Oh yeah, yeah. What what what? Well, that's an example of what theology today yeah. fits her her definition. So that's. Well, you know, Augustine's, you know, I think, I think all of us should be familiar with this. I mean, he, he's comprehensive and everything gets worked in and he's not fighting battles. He's discovering things. Um, I think Rowan Williams uh, in contemporary is, does the same thing. His, uh, his writing is just, um, it's lyrical in many places. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas in this country um, is, um, is uh, I think, well, he's the American theologian that has, has influenced me most. Um, so we've got them. We've got, we've got theologians who are writing well and lyrically. Uh, um, Charles Partee at, at Pittsburgh Seminary, we were colleagues for a while. He's just come out with a book on Calvin. Last couple of years, and it's um, it's a delight to read. Mm -hmm. um, but don't you love that thing, that sentence by Marilyn Robinson? Yes. 
Yeah. Well, and of course, she certainly regards John Calvin as yeah. fitting into that. I mean, she was uh, she read Calvin because she wanted to learn about Melville's theology behind yeah. the theology behind Moby Dick, and ended up falling in love uh, with, with with Calvin. <laughs> and we love her around here for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, kind of another question on, on, on writing. Um, Mark, Mark Twain once said that, uh, that he really envied Adam in the Garden of Eden because Twain said, Adam had one great advantage. When he said a good thing, he knew nobody had ever said it before. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody who writes sooner or later gets the feeling that we're repeating ourselves or, or you kind of get the feeling that uh, others have said this before and they've probably even said it better than I have. I mean, you surely in, in writing must sometimes feel that way or get to those moments of saying, ah, oh, it's all been said before. I mean, what, what, how do you motivate yourself to keep going? How do you kind of, if you, if you get into a little funk like that where you think, ah, oh, you know, Augustine said it all years ago and uh, what, what more is to be said? I mean, how, how do you kind of motivate yourself to keep going or to, or to find new and fresh ways to say it after all uh, or, or, or to t attempt that anyway? Augustine, one of Augustine's sayings is that the three, I think it was Augustine, the three most important things for a writer are humility, humility, humility. Hmm. We're coming in long in the game, and it has been said before. But let me tell you something which um, I kind of, when you're writing, you know, sometimes you do write a sentence, you think, wow, how did I do that? And, uh, you know, just nobody's ever said it quite like that before. And, um, but when I was translating the message, um, the hardest thing for me to do, it, um, it came remarkably easy, you know, to tell you the truth. I just, I felt when I, when I was doing that, I was just doing what I've been doing all my life, except now getting into the book. Um, but as, as this was coming toward, toward an end, like the New Testament, um, I was just really glad that I was getting to the end of the New Testament. And I was say to Jan, you know, I was really, I've loved doing this, but I, I really like to do my own writing. Um, I'm just tired of coming in second place. <laughs> I'm never as good as Mark, never as good as John. And, um, I had these five books kind of in my head, and, and, uh, and after things happened and consultations with Nav Press and others, uh, I agreed to do the Old Testament, and that was ten more years. I had ten more years I had to put off my work. <laughs> um, but it's true, you know, we are... we. Once in a while you might get a sentence, nobody else has done, but not very often. <laughs> but to submit ourselves to scripture and to, um, and I would expand that, I think, but submitting yourself to scripture, there is a sense of humility, there's a sense of submissiveness, there's not, there's not a sense of, oh, I've got the truth, now I can run with it. You never do. You're, you're always obedient, prayerful. Um, <clears throat> that's good practice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good practice training uh, for how we use language, how we treat each other, uh, how we do leadership. Uh, it's, you know, that kind of 
an atmosphere starts to pervade, I would call it a paracletic atmosphere, a Holy Spirit atmosphere, where we're being led instead of leading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, since you mentioned the messages, just uh, um, wanted to ask you about this before, and um, well, now's my chance. Um, when, when you translate or paraphrase uh, for, for the message, um, you said it came remarkably easy, which is amazing to me. Uh, but that's a wonderful gift you have. Uh, but but were there um, what were the hardest parts uh, to, to do in that project, Old Testament or New Testament Psalms? What were the hardest parts, and what what were the uh, what really went smoothly and and readily for you in that project? Um. <clears throat> I think the hardest parts were the Gospels, um, because there's such there's a kind of a limpid clarity to the Gospels. Um, they're restrained. Um, they uh, there's a simplicity and a directness. Uh, there's a lot of obliqueness also, but it's not overdone. It's you know there's it's hard to do that, and it's hard to get it from. Greek into American. Um, so I would say the Gospels were the hardest. Um, in some way, Paul is easy because he gets all tangled up in his syntax. <laughs> and it's kind of fun to kind of re-poetize what he does. <laughs> He's a poet. You know, he really is. He's not explaining things. Um, the, the the part of the Old Testament that was the that uh, <clears throat> was the, gave, I think gave me the most pleasure was Isaiah, hmm. and I think it's because of the quality of his poetry, and it was just really good to uh, enter into that. The hardest part <clears throat> was uh, had nothing to do with language. The last, the last um, section I did were, um, was Joshua Judges. And uh, so Judges was the final thing I was doing. And when I got to those last six chapters of Judges, I thought, Lord Jesus, why did you, why did I do this this way? Why couldn't I have gotten this done years ago? But it's just all rape, murder, mayhem. And, um, you know, I wasn't ending on a high note. <laughs> but it was, um, I've never really had any doubts about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, but I must, I must confess that I, I struggled through that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I recovered myself. <laughs> Um, probably my last question here. Um, um, if you could sit down, uh, my question is, if you could sit down with a group of aspiring young writers and pastors, but as a matter of fact, you are sitting down with a group of aspiring writers and pastors. I can see some of my seminary students here, first-year students and others who are here. Um, so if, if, if you could sit, uh, you have this chance now to talk to some uh, aspiring writers and future pastors, uh, people who are going to represent the next generation of influential writers and preachers and the voice of the church, um, what would be the top two or three things you'd recommend to them? Uh, what should they strive to do in their writing and preaching that you think will make a difference here in the 21st century and for the, the years to come? 
So advice for young writers. <laughs> By Eugene Peterson. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one, Scott. Well, that's my last question. It's like judges. <laughs> <laughs> this just occurred to me, and uh, so I'll just say it. Um, and this, this applies mostly, I suppose, to those who are writing as pastors and teachers. But learn your Greek and Hebrew really well. Get those two languages deep into your imagination. As you enter into this great corpus of writing we have, which is the Bible, um, get as close to the source as you can. And um, as you do that, you're not only dealing with material, with content, with information, you're entering into poetry, rhythms, metaphors, how metaphors work. You know, the Bible is just chock full of metaphors. And when we miss the metaphorical setting in which they are, we just try to explain them. And then you miss the whole thing. Um, so I was very fortunate <clears throat> um, that I'd, I, I, that's what I started out doing, being a teacher of Greek and Hebrew. And I spent several years doing that. So when I became a pastor, well, when I became a writer, I should say that, um, I was working out of a different context. Uh, I'd been trained to pay attention to words and get them right, uh, get them into my imagination, not just stuff out of the dictionary. So, <clears throat> so that. But that's very personal, too, so it might not pursue you. Um, I would say make, make really good friends with three or four poets. Poets are the high priests of language. And learn how poets make words work or enter into the way words work. Um, just three or four. You don't have to read everybody. You're not a literature professor. But find, find yourself four or five poets that you just live with for the rest of your life. Um, and you're being trained with how to use language or how language, how the people who were really good at language used it. And um, it'll <clears throat> rescue, from a lot, rescue you from a lot of cliches and slogans and cute phrases. And then I think third, um, learn to read and write prayerfully. We're not just doing this for ourselves. We're, we're working in the context of the word made flesh. And so prayer becomes the kind of the substratum about the way we use language. So prayer isn't something we just do before we start writing and then after we say amen at the end of it. Uh, it's a way of living into the language of the spirit, scripture, and the language of our readers who are going to be reading this or listening to this. You ask for three, I'll quit a three.
Very good. Very good. Um, are you just uh, just a, a, a one last little follow-up? Uh, not so long ago, um, people kind of predicted the death of the book and the death of reading because of video and and so forth. But um, that really doesn't seem to have happened. Are are, are you optimistic about um, the writing and also the reading of good books uh, for the 21st century? Are you optimistic that people are going to continue to want to devour good literature and good writing? I'm optimistic. I am. I don't think Twitter is going to have any lasting effect on the culture. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, well, wonderful. Well, Eugene Peterson, you honor us um, by your presence among us this week, and we thank you for this hour and look forward to hearing you um, again tomorrow. So, thank you. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Kelvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about the center, our initiatives, and our signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ccfwgr. You can also subscribe to our Rewrite Radio on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from our archives. Music